We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Ian Williams, who is a, a journalist, a, a veteran foreign correspondent, and also the author of a fascinating book, Every Breath You Take, China's New Tyranny. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Good morning. Thanks very much. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to have you on. And the first question that I'd like to ask is, this is obviously a very timely book, given uh, what's been happening uh, recently with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But what was it that specifically prompted you to write the book at this particular point? Was it the pandemic or was it some of the other things that the uh, Chinese state have been doing? It goes back a number of years because I've been working in and out of China now for what, 25 years, my last mm. trip being at the end of 2019, just before COVID. And I'd witnessed during that time, the way in which digital China, the internet, social networks had rapidly changed from being something which was seen as liberating, as I think they were in most parts of the world, and as seen as a way to hold the Communist Party to account, seen as a way of complaining, seen as a way of, uh, for people to communicate directly with each other and to say things they hadn't been able to before, to then see it progressively um, uh, not only censored and undermined, but turned into uh, a weapon by the Communist Party for not only censorship that were more that we're familiar with, but as an instrument of, of, of social control. Not only that, but as part of a much wider system of surveillance of, of the type, which I don't think we've seen before. Mm. Now, um, you mentioned uh, social uh, uh, media there and, and, and the, the, the utilisation of it by the Chinese state, because it's one of the things that you cover uh, very well in the book is the, the, the strange contrast between uh, social media being used as, as a propaganda means by uh, the Chinese state, but at the same time, uh, censorship of anything that is critical to the state, anything that may uh, make fun of either uh, Xi Jinping or uh, anything related to the, the, the ideology of the state. Do you think that this is something that makes it a bit more uh, difficult to uh, perhaps uh, combat uh, China in a in a digital age because the way that they are using it is in, in a quite um, complex way on the one hand for propaganda and on the other for suppression. Do you think that this makes it a bit more difficult to fully, uh, from a Western point of view, get our heads around how we can deal with the way that they use uh, social media and the internet? It does. I mean, there are several aspects uh, one is, of course, the way it's used at home uh, to censor and control, and also increasingly the way it's being used internationally, and the way some of these instruments are being exported, and the way some of them are being used against overseas dissidents, whether they be Tibetans, Uyghurs, or other political critics of the Communist Party. But what we're seeing within China is on an altogether different scale than what we've seen before. I remember going into the country and, you know, the old system was a bit like a Swiss cheese. There were, there were lots of holes in it. You could jump between them. There were a lot of uh, 
know, you could tunnel under the great firewall, as they they used to call it. There were ways in which netizens, which was, uh, that's a term which has become a bit hackneyed outside China, but is still used within it. Um, but uh, the, the way that they were communicating with each other through metaphors, through images, through a whole language of, of the internet, in order to be able to say things, in order to be able to criticize, in order to be able to poke fun. And when I was there, some of the major stories, whether it was on train crashes or industrial explosions or accidents, a lot of the place, you'd look first at the internet, at social media, mm. that would be very much the pulse of, of young China in particular. That's where you'd find out what was going on. But I think what we've seen now is not only a closing of a lot of those holes, a much more tight regulation of the internet in terms of the censorship, in terms of the internet police, in terms of the intimidation of critics, closing down websites, blocking others. Um, but it's gone beyond that and is now being used as a way of monitoring and controlling and, and pumping out propaganda. I think one example, for instance, is uh, the recruitment of large numbers of internet police, they're, they're called. I mean, a lot of these people work for the internet companies. A lot of mm. it is subcontracted to these companies. But they're not just blocking websites. It's more sophisticated now. They're joining the conversation. They're trying to turn the conversation. Um, and this is much cleverer. It's quite it's altogether more challenging um, for those who want to criticise the regime and for those who are looking for, for ways of countering it. Mm. And of course, as you point out in the book, there are many uh, Western com uh, companies that have aided and abetted the Chinese state by uh, helping uh, them in, 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 in certain ways. For example, uh, Apple with its um, sensor apps in the Chinese app store, uh, Facebook, its relationship with uh, Beijing is, is, is quite apparent in the book and, and also um, the way that Google has interacted with the Chinese state. Do you think then that to properly tackle the repressive measures that are used by the Chinese state? We have to look you know, at, at companies that are part of the Western world, that are uh, vital to the Western world, and be a bit firmer with them um, to make sure that they aren't aiding and abetting the Chinese state in its repression of its own people. I think we certainly do. And the big technology companies are the worst offenders. The, the ones you mentioned, they are the ones who appear willing to bend over backwards to appease the Chinese Communist Party in order to get a slice of this mythical market. And I say mythical because a lot of the time it, it doesn't happen. I mean, there are mm. companies that um, I'm amazed by the amount of abuse, if you like, that they take. Um, but at the end of the day, they stick around because uh, the, the promise of the market that, that they feel they, they need to be there. I mean, when I was researching this book, I came across uh, myself an instance of, of, of Apple censorship. I, Before writing this book, I wrote a novel called Beijing Smog, where the smog is literal, but also a sort of metaphor for mm. what is real, what is not real. Um, and I that the hero of that book, if that's the right term, is an internet meme that is posted by a Chinese blogger, goes viral and causes all sorts of issues for all sorts of people, but particularly the Communist Party, which doesn't have a sense of humor. 
Um, and he, you know, he posts it as a joke, but they don't get the joke and it, it creates all sorts of issues. But in the book, the blogger's trying to promote his little game that he creates out of this meme. And so he uh, writes a computer game which consists of little stick aliens coming out from under the big picture of Mao in Tiananmen Square. And the idea is that you have to swat these aliens with a big fly swat and you do that by manipulating the your... your um, your telephone, your smartphone. Anyway, I thought it would be a great way of promoting the book by, by creating this game. So I got a friend of mine to, to do the game, um, put it up to the Apple store, and then, which is usually quite a straightforward process. Uh, but a month later, I'd heard nothing. So I chased it. And then eventually, I was invited to ring Apple in the United States, um, whereupon I spoke to a a woman at, uh, I assume, at the headquarters there, um, who told me that although there were no technical issues, um, it would not be posted on the Chinese store because it was inappropriate content and that it broke local laws. I said, well, it's a game. <laughs> and, and, and I said, can you tell me what content is inappropriate, in what way is it inappropriate, and what laws? And she said, I do not have that information. I do not have, you know, it was like yeah, talking yeah. to an apparatchik in the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> but the more serious thing about that act of censorship is it was always assumed, because that's what Apple told us, that they censored sites when the Chinese wrote, drew it to their attention. And otherwise, they weren't proactive. But this case suggests that they are proactive and, and they're, you know, busy... Uh, in advance, censoring sites that they think will be offensive to the Communist Party. Um, and I particularly critical of Apple in the book because, okay, Zuckerberg, Google, some of the others, we, we know they don't have much truck with privacy. Mm. Um, but Apple makes a big thing. Privacy is a human right. Privacy is something we're not like the others we don't we don't do that but those pledges stop at the chinese border and i think that is something which is very distasteful hmm. do you think that partly because of coronavirus but also um some of the uh human rights abuses that we have seen against uh the uyghur people do you think that the the west and western politicians are finally waking up to um the, the scale of a threat that China can potentially be and already is to the Western world? I think they are waking up. I mean, I, I quoted in the book an interview that uh, John Sawyers, who's a former head of MI6, wrote a piece for the Financial Times last summer um, in the wake of the beginning, well, the early stages of the COVID uh, pandemic. And he said in that piece, um, we have learned more about China in the last six months than we have in the previous six years. And I thought, well, what have you and your former employer been doing for six years? Because it was pretty obvious from early on the sort of person that Xi Jinping was, mm. the direction he was going in, the way he was harnessing technology in a manner, a shilling manner that had never happened before. Uh, the way he was throwing his weight around internationally, the way he was repressing at home. And it shouldn't really have come as a great surprise. Yes, we saw um, a side of the Communist Party in the during the COVID epidemic. We, we saw um, the intimidation of 
Taiwan, the crackdown in Hong Kong, um, Xinjiang, all these things accelerated last year. But it shouldn't really have come as any surprise. But to ask, answer your question, yes, I think that Western governments are waking up belatedly to this threat. Um, and I think Xinjiang has been instrumental in that because the human rights abuses there are so obscene, they're so mm. egregious. I and mean, it doesn't matter how you describe them. And I know there's an active debate over the precise label. Can you describe it as genocide or not? But in the end, I, I don't think the label matters. Whichever way mm. you look at it, it's obscene. Uh, and, I, and I think it's, it, you can't ignore it. And I think it's really been... The, the, the aspect of China's behavior that more than any other, which has forced people to, to wake up to where China is going under Xi Jinping. Mm. And in the book, you make the comparison between uh, Xi and Putin in terms of the fact that initially both were seen as uh, changes to the old guard and perhaps uh, much more uh, friendly figures uh, to the West. And then uh, in both cases, the West has sort of realised that perhaps they aren't uh, the friendly figures that they initially thought. Do you think that the um, initial open welcoming of arms to, to both was uh, a, a sort of like naivete on the part of Western governments? Or do you think that it just simply was that as they have become a uh, more established uh, in their respective positions, they have become more open about uh, their intentions in their countries? I think a lot of it was wishful thinking. Um, you, know, you had Putin who, who emerged from the uh, Yeltsin entourage. Um, but with, with Xi, there was very little evidence to support the fact he was a reformer. Mm. And yet people leapt upon tiny little things he'd said, the fact he'd visited the States, the fact his father was a, a reformer. But there was very little evidence to support the fact that, that, that he would um, go in that, in that direction. I think it was very much wishful thinking. Um, and I think that generally in dealing with China, there has been, and there still remains to some extent, an incredible amount of naivety uh, naivety tinged with greed, I think, particularly when you look at a lot of the corporate dealings with China and also with the, the, the university sector. Um, and again, it's something which they are only just waking up to, but in a lot of cases, not really quickly enough. Mm. Um, one thing uh, that you also touch upon in the book and, and something that I don't think uh, as many people are perhaps uh, aware of or have, have um, perhaps uh, outside foreign correspondents, of course, looked into in great uh, detail is the, the Belt and Road Initiative. For those who aren't aware uh, what that is, could you just uh, explain uh, what it is? Yeah, well, if, you know, if you listen to the Chinese propaganda, it's this uh, biggest and extraordinarily generous and benevolent um, infrastructure fund uh, worth trillions uh, which is designed to help and lift, improve the economies uh, and, and the cooperation between countries worldwide. Um, when you look at it more closely, it's a classic neo-colonial uh, enterprise. Um, it is, I mean, it's become an umbrella term for all manner of, of things that China does as part of its foreign policy. 
um, the new Silk Road it was once described. I think sort of Marco Polo would have cringed mm. because it <laughs> takes into account you know, there's an Arctic Silk Road, there's a sea bow. I mean, it's, it, it's an umbrella term for all manner of Chinese foreign policy, but it's become very much an instrument of Chinese geopolitical ambition, um, a way to bend the world to its will. It's all be, also become a, a, a very damaging instrument of, of debt trap, um, countries being saddled with huge debts that they can't repay. You know, it seems like it's free. There's none of these pesky um, conditions they would get from the World Bank, for instance, or Western, lay, Western mm -hmm. lenders, which typically require... Um, labor, environmental, or other human rights standards to accompany acceptance of, of, of the loan. In China, you know, they, they tout it very much as condition-free, but of course it's not condition-free. Um, the, 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 the keenest uh, countries have been the most politically obnoxious. Mm. I mean, recently they, they signed a deal with, to take the Belt and Road to Syria, um, of all places, and, and you, you, you know, you, you have a certain amount of backlash now because if you look at Myanmar, when the coup took place earlier this year, a lot of the protests were outside the Chinese embassy because, rightly or wrongly, China was seen to be the power behind the military. Um, so I think the, it, in my view, it is very much a neo-colonial enterprise, uh, riddled with corruption, lack of transparency and with the aim of extending Chinese influence. And you see that, for instance, uh, to return to Xinjiang, to me, it's absolutely shocking that some of the biggest Muslim majority countries in the world have either been silent or have actually defended China on this. Mm. I mean, that's outrageous. But if you look at these countries more closely, they're also the biggest recipients of money, countries like Pakistan, mm. um, under the Belt and Road Initiative. So they're locked in, you know, they are locked into this embrace with China, which has made it impossible for them to criticize what is, I think, without doubt, the, 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 the biggest uh, uh, abuse against the, the, the Muslim religion worldwide at the moment. Mm. How do you think Western um, countries can uh, counter the economic influence that China has through the Belt and Road initiatives on some of the, the nations that you mentioned. Do you think that the, the, there is a way that uh, uh, nations like the, the UK or Australia or uh, uh, Britain or France can counter the Belt and Road initiative? Or do you think that it's becoming too uh, deep-seated and, and, and too ensconced in some of the economies of these countries? I think there are two aspects there. One is I, I, I already see um, there is, I mean, the EU announced just the other day an infrastructure fund, which was pretty clearly directed at competing with China in some of these countries. Um, the US has become more active. I think they realize it was an old term, war by other means, which China has been extraordinarily successful at using market investment trade as instruments of coercion. Um, but I think that countries now realize that they have to engage more economically, um, especially with emerging countries, with, with poorer countries. And it's, you know, it's not on the scale yet of what we've seen from China, but there is a realization that they need to do this. I think as well that I wouldn't quite say the Belt and Road is going to implode, but I do think there are big issues with it, mm. which means that it is going to rapidly slow down. There, is a, there are a lot of countries which are pretty irritated 
um, by what's happening. Um, Sri Lanka's had to hand over an entire port in lieu of a loan they could no longer pay. Um, and you're seeing countries becoming increasingly unnerved by the scale of the debts and the prospect of having to hand over piece of their of their infrastructure as as collateral uh, if they're unable to pay loans. And I think you're seeing in the wake of COVID a slowdown in lending by China because they simply don't have the sort of funds they were pumping out before. Mm. Um, compounded by an uncertainty whether they'll ever get it back. Um, combined with countries becoming much more cautious and realizing this, you know, this, this isn't free money. There are huge political obligations um, and there are huge issues in actually repaying it. Now, a lot of the countries on the receiving end, I mean, there is no country which is too odious to become a partner of China. Mm. And in many ways, the um, the more authoritarian, the more unpleasant, the more comfortable China feels with them because it can associate with, you know, relate to that sort of regime better. Mm. Um, but I do think generally we will, they won't get um, a free pass in the way they have had before because of the contradictions within the Belt and Road, Road program. And also because I think Western democracies um, and like-minded democracies, Japan, for instance, uh, comes to mind, which is very active on this front, they realize that they have to step up in terms of their aid, assistance and investment. Mm. Um, now, uh, you mentioned some of uh, uh, the odious uh, regimes that the, the Chinese are allied to there. And of course, um, one of the things that we have seen um, recently due to the developments in Afghanistan has been uh, the Chinese government making uh, overt uh, uh, calls towards uh, the, the Taliban and also uh, using the uh, United States and the uh, other coalition troops withdrawal from Afghanistan as a means of, of threatening countries like Taiwan, putting out uh, messages on social media saying things like, oh, well, the Americans won't uh, help you, Taiwan, because they didn't help the uh, Afghan government, they didn't help uh, Afghanistan. Do you think that this is something that we're going to see uh, more of if countries like the United States aren't more uh, forward uh, thinking and, and perhaps a, a pushing back a bit more on China? Is China growing in confidence and potentially eyeing up countries that it is for quite a long time uh, seen as, as enemies and, and, and subsidiaries of it like uh, Taiwan and being much more aggressive to them, uh, potentially invading or, or, or trying to cut them off in some way? Yeah, I mean, the, the aggression, um, verbal, as well as the military intimidation against Taiwan has reached incredible levels under Xi Jinping. And, and I think what's worrying is that he's made, quote unquote, the recovery of Taiwan, um, a key aspect of his you know, rejuvenation of, of, of China, his nationalist mission, um, in a way that previous leaders has been, have been more cautious about. And I do, I am worried about Taiwan. It is significant that uh, when the US and allies had their messy withdrawal from Afghanistan, it was, I mean, China reveled in that. Mm. Uh, the propaganda, um, not only seeing as the, the, the humiliation of the superpower, but also um, bombarding Taiwan with messages much along the lines of, yes, you look, you can't rely on them. This is an unreliable ally. 
they've done this to Afghanistan, they'll do it to you. Um, the bigger picture, of course, is although it was a messy withdrawal from Afghanistan, the logic from the American perspective is that it allows them to concentrate on what they see as the more um, difficult, longer-term, medium-term threats, in, in China being foremost among them. Um, but Afghanistan's interesting in lots of ways because, yes, China celebrated uh, the Americans leaving and the manner of them leaving, but I think they're very uneasy about the, having the Taliban back next door, um, especially just across short border, but just across the border with, with Xinjiang, where you've got such an egregious abuse of human rights, which is targeting a Muslim minority group. Hmm. Um, now, w one of the things that you um, also touch upon in the book is uh, China having uh, front companies, uh, corporate standard bearers like uh, Huawei. Um, and of course, uh, prior to um, the pandemic in the UK, we were seeing potentially uh, Huawei uh, being responsible for the 5G networks in the UK and having a massive access to uh, internet in the UK. Why do you think that the British government was willing to work with Huawei when it was evident uh, even before uh, the, the, the pandemic and, and, and even before um, the, the plans were going forward and there was quite a, a significant backlash from both Conservative and uh, other MPs? Why do you think the government were going ahead with it? It puzzles me sometimes, Will, to think about that because to me it's so obvious that there were numerous red lights, um, warning signs about Huawei. I mean, there is no such thing as a private Chinese company in any meaningful sense of that word. They've always been subject to the, the reality of Communist Party power mm. and a whole swathe of laws, which means that they have to do the party's bidding. And that has all become even more so under Xi Jinping. But to me, the whole golden era, Cameron, Osborne, uh, and the, you know, the Huawei relationship was part and parcel of that is astonishing. And I think you look now at what we are seeing with China's behavior at home and internationally, what we now know about Huawei, and you ask yourself, how on earth did we allow ourselves to get so close to this company? and even consider allowing them to be part of such critical national infrastructure. I mean, it seems madness. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there was a certain amount of naivety. There was an enormous amount of greed. There was a lot of wishful thinking. Um, they set up uh, an organization under GCHQ whose job it mm -hmm. was and still is to examine Huawei technology um, that persistently told them that they thought they could manage the risk, even though they didn't think it was particularly secure. Um, but I think ultimately it was a combination of American pressure, of backbench pressure, and a belated recognition within the government that it that that you know you simply couldn't allow this company to to play that role. Mm. Um, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast. It's been great to speak to you, Ian, and I have one final question. Um, we've looked a certain amount at uh, coronavirus. We've discussed it a little bit, but not in uh, quite a, a, a great deal of detail. But uh, things in the UK are beginning to get uh, a bit better with the uh, the vaccine rollout and um, cases not being quite as, as, as high as they have been 
um, previously. So when things do finally get back to some uh, semblance of normality as they were prior to the pandemic, what one thing that you haven't been able to do are you most looking forward to being able to do again? Well, I'm, I'm working well, to get, get back traveling again, I guess. Mm. Um, I used to travel a lot um, because I like traveling and also for my job. And I can't remember the last time I spent, what, 18 months without going to an airport. Because, mm. you know, I just can't remember when that last happened. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to, to getting out and about again. I, I have another book uh, which I'm working on, which is looking more broadly at China's international behavior. And Taiwan is a key part of that. Mm-hmm. And although I have regularly visited Taiwan over the years, I'm, I'm looking forward enormously to getting to getting back there. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Taiwan as a, I mean, it represents to me, it's an open, diverse, tolerant, liberal, and very successful democracy. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's everything China isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, that that will be high on my list as soon as that becomes possible. But gen- generally, um, getting back traveling again. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully you will be able to get back uh, traveling again very soon and be able to, to visit Taiwan again uh, very soon. For people who would like to uh, buy the book and perhaps uh, know more uh, about you and, and your work, uh, where should people go to, to either buy the book or, or, or to follow uh, what you're writing about and what you're doing at the moment? Um, I always post my latest stuff on my website, which is uh, uh, www.ianwilliamsauthor.net, uh, which has a lot of the, the most recent articles, as well as links as to where the books can be uh, can be bought. I'm, I'm a big fan of bookshop.org because <laughs> a lot of you know the funds go to small bookshops mm. um, uh, as an online source, uh, but it's available from all from all major bookshops. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the debated podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.